Let's come before our Father in prayer. Our Father who are in heaven, you dwell in the high and lofty places, and your heart is with the contrite and the lowly. You sit between the cherubim, and you are near to those and receive those who are afflicted and brought low. Your ways are so much higher than our ways. And so with confidence, we can come to you for grace in our time of need. We are quick to anger and quick to take offense, quick to judge others and to justify ourselves. But your ways are not those ways. You are quick to compassion and plenteous in mercy, endless in loving kindness. And so, Father, we pray that you would teach us your ways. That you would hallow and magnify your name in us, that we might rightly know you. That yes, you are a God of judgment and justice, but you are a God abounding in mercy and faithfulness and compassion. You never get tired of us. You never reproach us in our need, for you know our need even better than we do ourselves. And you delight to hear our prayers. So Father, fill us with your spirit that we might begin to know the love of Christ, which passes all understanding. And as we know him, Father, give us the grace to be conformed to his image. Teach us kindness and generosity and love. Fill us with joy and praise. Teach us patience and endurance. Give us understanding hearts. Draw us away from the allure of the world and set our affections where Christ is at your right hand. Forgive us our sins, which are many. Forgive the sins that we know about. Forgive the sins that we don't know about. Forgive the presumptuous sins. Forgive the sins that our sinful nature carries with us. Forgive the sins that we haven't committed yet. For we cling to your promises that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And Father, our sins abound. We pray that you would deliver us. In our own community, Father, we pray for your favor and blessing on those who seek to alleviate suffering and bring comfort to the traumatized ones. We pray that you would bless uh, the people at TIP and a woman's friend and live on and Casa de Esperanza and Freed and so many others that are working together to bring safety to the endangered and help to the wounded and hope to the comfortless. We pray that you would bless their work, that you would provide food for the hungry Give safety and justice to all who have to flee from their abusive homes. Give comfort and hope to the downtrodden and discouraged. Bless our state, we pray. Bless Governor Newsom and all those who work in our assembly. Give wisdom and righteousness. We pray that you would bless the judges and the first responders and all those that work to protect the streets. We pray that you would protect the unborn and give justice to the oppressed and abused. Give wisdom and prudence to our president and Congress that we might live peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness. Father, we pray that you would give healing to those who are sick. Protect us from viruses. Give us humility and patience. There are many also who suffer from chronic pain and chronic illness. We pray that you would cause them to look where Christ is on the throne. Remind us all that our life is not here, but seated at the right hand of God. We pray that you would give healing and strength to Clark and draw him to you. Give wisdom to Bud and to Hugo. I pray that you would heal Brian's back and give him strength as he recovers. Provide for them, we pray. Provide for us all. 
And while we walk this valley of tears together, we pray that you would give us days of freedom from pain. Give us quiet oases of rest on our journey that we might not become too discouraged. And deliver us from the evil one who seeks to divide and devour and destroy. We are not unaware of his devices, pride and envy and fear and distrust and individualism. Deliver us from him as he seeks to drive us to despair and ground our hope and our trust in your word alone, which cannot be shaken. Today, may we learn a bit more about the deep and unfathomable love of Jesus. May we know your power to raise the dead, give life to our dusty bones. Bless the reading and preaching of your word today. Give us ready hearts, quick to hear. Guide my lips, give us peace, and let's pray together. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. My text this morning is Luke chapter 16. My text goes through verse 13. And I'm going to read the entire chapter today. It all does go together, so I'll be referring to events in other parts of the chapter. Uh, but I'm going to focus my comments this morning on the first 13 verses. And we'll fill in the rest of it as we move through it over the next few weeks. So Luke chapter 16, let's give attention to the reading of God's word. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses." So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and write fifty. And he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you who, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard these things, and they derided him. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. 
The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead." As we get started, it would be prudent to have a quick note on the interpretation of parables. Uh, Jesus sometimes told parables to confound and confuse uh, those who rejected him. And sometimes Jesus told parables of stories to illustrate what he was teaching. So when you are interpreting the parables, it's important to keep in mind the main point that Jesus is making. For example, in our parable... The steward was truly dishonest. In fact, Jesus said he was unjust. Idikeia uh, is the Greek word, not just, adikeia. So you don't have to twist his actions around and try and justify them. But if you don't keep in mind the purpose of the parable, you might come to the conclusion that Jesus is commending dishonesty, theft, and treachery. Of course, he certainly is not. He explains the meaning of the parable in verses 9 through 11, which we will get at. So the first thing I want to do this morning is look at the parable and put it in its context, its historical and cultural context, and then I would like to look at the application. In ancient households, it was common for a rich landowner to have a slave or an employee that ran the day-to-day -day operations of the whole household. We do have managers today, but it was even more extreme back then, for the steward often carried the authority of the owner and conducted all transactions in the name of the landowner, and frequently the landowner might not even know what's going on with all of his holdings, depending on how trustworthy the steward is. The steward signed loans 
did financial transactions, signed promissory notes, made loans, made payments, bought property, all in the name of the manager or the owner. He would often be in charge of every single detail of the household operation. Joseph in the Old Testament was like this with Potiphar's house. Uh, it'll explain how this works with, in that story in Genesis 39. It says, Joseph found favor in his sight, that is Potiphar, his master, and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he, that is Potiphar, left all that he had in Joseph's hand and did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Joseph was in charge of everything in Potiphar's household to the point where Potiphar didn't even know what was coming and what was going. Potiphar lived in luxury as befitted a nobleman in Egypt and Joseph took care of everything. Of course, the penalty would have been severe had Joseph been found guilty of treachery. That's the cultural background. In our story that Jesus is telling, it comes to the attention of the landowner, of the master, that the steward has not done a good job. It's unclear whether it was because of dishonesty or whether it was simply a mistake or whether he was just incompetent. The fact is, he's about to get his walking papers for doing a bad job. He's about to be fired. We don't know how long he has, but since everything has been put in his hand, he needs to put it all together and get it ready for the next guy to take over. And so the master gives him however long to get all of the affairs in order. You could talk about the wisdom of the master doing this, but that's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is that the steward is in trouble. And that day there wasn't a severance package. There wasn't a government retirement account. There won't be welfare to fall back on. He apparently has no family. As soon as he is fired, he will be in desperate need for a place to live and a place to eat, for he's about to lose everything. He's had an office job his whole life, so he doesn't have the physical shape to dig ditches or drive oxen. Those jobs would have been relatively easy to find. He's too proud to beg, so he doesn't want to go that route. He would lose all credibility in society completely if he turned to begging. So what does he do? Remember that all of his master's goods are in his hands. He can do with them as he pleases. And so he calls every one of his master's debtors in for a meeting. Everyone who owes the master anything. And he says, how much do you owe? A hundred barrels? Okay, cut it in half. Now you owe 50. Wow, that's awesome. How much do you owe? 80? Let's take off 20. Now you owe 60. He's the steward. He can do this. It's legal. The promissory notes are there. The master has no way of proving it was done by dishonesty. And this makes us really uncomfortable. He just ripped off his boss. That's true. He did. Jesus said he was unjust. But here's the point of the parable. When he got fired, he now had friends. The master acknowledged that he was outwitted. The steward understood the situation. He understood the nature of his stewardship. He knew that nothing was his. 
He used the goods that he had temporary power over to relieve the burdens of others so that when he did get fired, he would have friends. Jesus says sometimes unbeliever, unbelieving crooks have more sense than children of light. Proverbs teaches the same message. Solomon says in Proverbs 6, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Just as the steward was about to get fired, so the ant knows that wisdom is coming. The fact is, every single one of us is about to get fired. You shouldn't need a whip to explain to you what you ought to do. Jesus and Solomon are saying the same thing. Be at least as smart as an ant. Be at least as wise as this unbelieving crook. So what does that mean? First of all, we need to acknowledge that nothing that we have is ours. It belongs to another master. It's lent to us for a season, and God will hold us accountable for what we do with it, but nothing is ours. That term is stewardship, which actually comes from this parable. It means that not only our money, but all of our gifts, our talents, our possessions, whatever power we have, all of it are given to us by God, and we will give an account of what we do with it. In certain circles, stewardship, that word is almost synonymous with being tight-fisted, I use the old English word, mean you hear for the church, we need to use the cheapest materials and call that good stewardship. For the pastor, he really needs to know how to squeeze a penny, teach us all good stewardship. Those who are stingy are frequently pay, praised as being good stewards, and those who are generous are belittled as being gullible and wasteful. But being cheap has really nothing to do with what stewardship means in the Bible. Nothing belongs to us. It's merely lent to us for a time, and we're about to be fired. If we are wise, we will use the things that God has given us to relieve the burden of others. That's the point. To restore dignity where it has fallen, to lift up the hurting and the wounded, to give generously of our time, our resources, our power, whatever we have, to help our neighbor whenever we can. Universally, in Scripture, stewardship means generosity, kindness, giving without expecting anything in return, because we came into this world naked, and we will leave this world naked. Jesus said the measure that you use to measure out goods will be the measure that goods are measured out to you. In other words, how do you give? Is it generously, both hands open, or is it as stingily as possible? This is going to be more clear as we go through. So let's follow this all the way through. So Jesus tells his followers, use the unrighteous mammon. 
I'll spend more time on the word mammon next week. But mammon, for the purposes today, are the earthly goods. They're unrighteous because they're the things of this earth. They're under the curse of Adam. They're all fading. As Jesus said in many other places, the thieves will break in and steal it. Metal rusts, cloth rots away. It's unrighteous. It fades away. But use that unrighteous mammon to make friends for yourself. So that when you fail, which you will... You will have people waiting to welcome you into your everlasting home. So let's put this in the context of the book of Luke. Of course, we've been going over the last few weeks, and if you haven't caught up with it, I would encourage you to do that. We have gone over the last couple of weeks the context of Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees. As I've said before, the Pharisees set up an elaborate system of rules. They were dedicated to earning God's favor through a relentless system of this is what you do and this is what you avoid. As the Romans got more and more powerful and as the nation got more and more openly lawless, the Pharisees responded with more outward rules, more hedges, more strictness, and even tighter hold on their scrupulosity, if you will. They firmly believed that the only way to get the blessing of God was to rid the world of this riffraff here, get together enough power to drive the Romans out, and then we will be able to be received into God's kingdom. Messiah, when he comes, will help us with that goal. In order for that battle to succeed, there was an extremely important concept to the Pharisees to not waste resources. There are only limited resources and we need to use them properly. They would have even called it good stewardship. But the scripture says that it wasn't good stewardship. They were lovers of money. Their bank accounts, the size of their crops and the size of their barns, determined their standing before men, whether they were invited to the best feasts whether they had the best seats at the tables. Their wealth determined their worthiness to receive the blessing of God. That's the context of this strife, which we've gone over over the past few weeks. In that context now, Jesus takes a break and it says he's saying this to his disciples. The Pharisees are overhearing what he's saying, but they're scoffing at him and they're mocking him. Jesus is speaking, though, to his disciples here. A disciple is one who follows. If you want to be my disciple, follow me. Do as I do. That's what a disciple was. A disciple was one who sat at the foot of a rabbi, followed him everywhere he went, and when his training was complete, he acted, talked, spoke, and lived just like the rabbi did. That's what a disciple was. So Jesus is talking to his disciples. When his training is complete, his disciples will be like him. So what was Jesus like? Everything Jesus did, everything he possessed, including his own body, all of his power was put in service to God in order to relieve burden and restore dignity to people who didn't deserve it at all. That would be you and me. 
He used his power to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to give water to the thirsty, to give hope and dignity to the outcast and the abused. He used his voice to speak words of comfort to the sheep and drive the wolves away. And he offered his body as a sacrifice to the wrath of God so that you and I might be saved. He did this because he didn't enter into the world to do his own will, to serve himself, but to serve his Father in heaven. He did what he did for the joy that was set before him, as the scripture says. The joy was the reception of his church into his everlasting arms. The reason Jesus did all of that is to win for himself a bride, to sanctify us, to welcome us into his arms, to rejoice over us with singing, as the prophet said. He earned his reward, as the scripture says, which was the Holy Spirit that was poured out on his church in the book of Acts, given to all of us, filling us with faith and love and joy and peace, all because of the sacrifice of Christ, that he used everything at his disposal to draw us to himself. And the scripture says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now we know with his followers, he gives gifts. He says sometimes he gives 10, sometimes he gives 50, sometimes 100. Every one of us, every human on earth, and especially every follower of Jesus Christ, has particular gifts. Some are given the gift of making money. Some are given other gifts, making music, making art, making poetry, knowing the right words to say, the gift of praying for one another in church. They never forget. They're continually in prayer. They use the voice that they have to speak words of kindness. Some people are gifted with strength, with the ability to walk a hundred yards without pain. Don't neglect that gift. Not everyone has it. So Jesus is talking to his disciples, those whom he said, follow me. You have gifts. You're stewards. You've been given everything you have. From your master. And this life is going to end. Your body will rot in the ground. With that in mind, what do your money, your beauty, your health, your gifts, your power, your strength, your youth, and all of your possessions have in common? They will all be left behind when your body decays in the dust. What can you take with you? Jesus says, make friends with those gifts while you still can. I think he's explaining what he means in the story of Lazarus at the end of the chapter. There was a rich man who lived in luxury. He dined sumptuously every day. In that day and age, the goal of dining sumptuously was to showcase your wealth, to showcase your power, that you could kill a peacock and eat their tongue. Just for that. The eggs of a fish. To dine sumptuously meant there would be a lot of waste. Having far more wealth than one actually needs was considered a virtue in the Greco-Roman world. And especially when you baptized it with pious language as the Pharisees did. There was great show made of how grand and sumptuous the feasts were and those who were in and those who were out. We've talked about that before. 
Outside of this rich man's gate was a starving beggar. Even the dogs were kinder to him than the people were. Now, as he's telling this story, the Pharisees who are hearing this story would have envied the rich man. They would have said, yep, that's a good man. That's what we need to strive to. He's a good steward. He knows how to use his wealth to make more wealth. He's someone to be emulated. He's obviously favored of God, deserving of God's kindness. A rich man didn't get rich unless God blessed him, and we know that God doesn't bless sinners. Hence, a rich man is blessed. As for Lazarus, really? Why do these people have to stink up our sidewalks? He probably drank himself here. He's probably a drug addict. Obviously not blessed by God, and therefore a sinner. You don't waste precious, limited resources on sinners. How can you give him anything? You don't know what he's going to do with it. He's probably just going to go out and buy more alcohol. How can we build churches if we give money to people like that? How can we take care of ourselves if we give money to people like that? If we gave our money to sinners, who knows what they would do with it? And worse... We might be partakers of their sin. So Lazarus dies. But Jesus said in a beautiful picture, we're going to spend more time on this in another sermon, the angels carry him to Abraham's bosom. Lazarus, according to the things of this earth, died alone in a gutter. According to the things of this earth, the rich man dies in luxury. He's surrounded by mourners, and he goes alone into hell. I want to use this, and I want to just mention this for now, about what Jesus meant about making friends with unrighteous mammon. What if this rich man had understood the dire warnings about death and judgment and fled to Jesus for refuge And then he would have had a new perspective on his riches that they're just lent to him for a time in order to bless his neighbor like this guy. How would he have then viewed the beggar? With contempt? Or would he receive him as a fellow beggar, a fellow sinner, a fellow Christian, then provided for him, restored his dignity, restored his voice, spoke with him as a brother face to face? Is that not the result of truly coming to Christ? In fact, Jesus said, Be careful to entertain strangers, for some have entertained angels without knowing it. What would have happened if the rich man had viewed his unrighteous mammon that way? Well, he might not have died surrounded by sycophants and flatterers. He might have died alone with a lot of reproach and side-eyed glances like the Pharisees were giving Jesus right then. But he would have been welcomed to heaven by Abraham, by Lazarus, by all the other brothers and sisters that had gone before, and all those people who rejoiced to see him into the gates of heaven. Jesus calls us faithfulness in what is least. No matter how much wealth or power or strength or beauty you have on this earth, they are earthly things, they fade and they die. When you're fired, when the winter comes, when the grave takes you away, and it will, can you say, 
that you are faithful in the least things. It's not about earning your salvation. It's about being a disciple. Being a disciple is living a life under the eye of a good God with thankfulness and contentment. When we understand that all of our good gifts are merely lent to us for a season. And therefore, if you wish to have a blessed, joyful, meaningful life here and blessing in the world to come, make friends with unrighteous mammon. Peter talks about being tender-hearted, being courteous, love, compassion with one another, blessing one another, refrain our tongues from speaking evil and our lips from speaking deceit, turning away from evil and doing good. There are some people that live their lives in such a way that the thought of running into them in heaven sends a gray cloud over our thoughts of heaven. Think about that for a moment. Say, I go to heaven. If that guy's there, oh. Now, I understand the grace of God changes people. I understand all of that. But here's the idea. If we are truly disciples of Christ, shouldn't our deaths cause grief for those that we come in contact with? Shouldn't our presence in heaven cause our fellow believers to long for heaven even more? If we are disciples of Christ, should not believers want to spend eternity with us? The scripture says we're all members of one body, eating one bread with one Lord, one faith, one baptism. How can we be faithful with little? How can we do that with what we have? Let's make this practical. In our culture, in our day and age, how can we live a life where our presence is a blessing to all of those around us? How do we treat the single mom using food stamps to pay for groceries? How do we treat the immigrant? What can we do to bring mercy to our communities? Can we carry water bottles with us for the homeless? Can we help with the food banks in town? Can we cheerfully pay taxes? And yes, I know that every government is corrupt, and I know that taxes are squandered and wasted, but it's also a means by which we can provide. What attitude do we bring to the Lazarus on our streets? What can we do better? How can we treat the teenage girl that got herself into trouble, the woman with her children trying to escape, her violent husband? Can we do something to help? In the church, kindness and generosity, prayers, a change of attitude, putting away fear and simply being there. I am greatly concerned that the attitude among churches is becoming more calloused, hardened, uncompassionate, ruthless, judgmental. That's not following Jesus. If Jesus treated us the way we treat others, would we have been saved? That's true, we can't help them all. But to use that as an excuse is deadly. The rich man wasn't condemned because he didn't create a whole new society. He was condemned because he didn't care for the one guy outside of his gate. James wrote, Therefore to him who knows to do good, and does not do it. To him it is sin. 
It is simply letting the love of Christ dwell richly in us, overflow in our communities and in our connections. And we all have different gifts. We all have different abilities. Some have the gift of prayers and some have the gift of kind words and some bodies are fading away, but we can pray for one another. We can lift up one another. That's letting the love of Christ dwell richly in us. If we can't manage that, then maybe we should question whether we are disciples at all, which is how Jesus concludes this. If you have not been faithful with unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? I'll spend more time on what mammon is next week. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us a spirit of generosity of kindness, of help, with relieving burdens, with whatever gifts you have given us, however small, that we might be a blessing to those we come in contact with instead of a byword and a curse when our backs are turned. We pray, Father, that we might generously give to those in need and that you would enable us to find a way to relieve burdens wherever we can so that we might be faithful followers of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.